0: It's a sweltering August Sunday in Baltimore City, and you're practically itching to leave the house, to get outdoors, see, and be seen. You want to go somewhere where it's popping, where you can trip with your cousins, cook out with your whole family, flirt, and see your friends. You want tall trees, fresh air, clean, open spaces, and you don't want to have to ride all the way down to the waterfront to get it. Of course, that means you're heading to Druid Hill Park, the 745 acres of hills, centuries-old trees, and beautiful multicolored umbrella pavilions. Home to the city zoo, the second oldest botanical conservatory in the United States, a popular public pool, tennis courts, and more, Druid Hill Park is one of Baltimore City's most breathtaking natural wonders. And on Sundays in the summer, when hosts of local residents post up along Druid Park Lake Drive, lean against their open car doors, and let their music boom out into the park, it can become the site of the city's most breathtaking human wonders, too. The third oldest urban park in the country, inaugurated just two years after New York City's Central Park druid hill has been the site of 156 years of splendor and scandal in baltimore city and fortunately for us all it's enjoying a much deserved period of renaissance and reinvention today for weaa 88.9 fm i'm stacia brown and this is baltimore the rise of charm city episode 12 glow in the park where are we right
1: now we are in druid hill park my name is Ann Draddy. I'm a city employee. I worked for the uh, Department of Recreation and Parks for 11 years, and I spent a lot of time in Druid Hill. I co-authored a book called Druid Hill Park, The Heart of Historic Baltimore, with Eden unger Bowditch. And I also reignited the Friends of Druid Hill.
0: We met Ann near the park's awesome. entrance, in front of the Howard P. So Rawlings Conservatory, bold, where it? she gave us a tour of some of the park's most popular spaces.
1: So this was the clay tennis courts here.
0: We talked history, including when the park opened.
1: 1860, it's an English country landscape park designed at the same time as Central Park. The guy who designed this park came in fourth in the Central Park competition.
0: That guy is George Aloysius Frederick. He'd go on to build some of the city's most iconic buildings and spaces.
1: There's also the Moorish Tower, which stands right next to the reservoir. You can see that when you're driving down 83. It looks like a little chess piece, and that's another George Aloysius Frederick design. He he also designed City Hall, Silburn Mansion, and Silburn Arboretum, many other churches and buildings in town. In the late 1850s, the city was looking for a larger space to get away kind of from the ills of the city, the crowds. And this was a movement that was happening in Europe. Somebody like Frederick Law Olmsted went over to Europe and saw this was going on, and he brought it back to the States along with some other prominent landscape architects. So the U.S. started doing that. The parks movement was happening here in the 1850s, 1860s. And Baltimore had one of the first large urban parks in in the country. We house everything here. One of the cool things that I like to talk about the park is um, in the front of the park, it's all flat. It's where all the recreation was built. We have ball fields and the pools, the tennis courts are all here. And in the northern part of the park, it's kind of the Piedmont Plateau. It's very hilly and rocky, so you couldn't build upon it. But we have 135 acres of woods in in the middle of the city. It's a very dense uh, area of woods that people can go into, and you feel like you're in the country, in the city.
0: In its early days, Druid Hill Park employed all kinds of specialists dedicated to beautifying and maintaining its grounds, including a park architect, a park shepherd, and even an official park band that regularly played on a prominently located bandstand, since lost to disrepair. We asked Anne what parts of the park she'd recommend to newcomers today.
1: You know, the trail, the Jones Falls Trail, which starts at the Inner Harbor, was built through the park in 2008. It's almost three miles, and it winds your way from the southern end of the park by the swimming pool all the way around the reservoir and by the zoo and um, goes down into the woods and then comes out at Clipper Mill. So I think that's, for anybody wanting to experience Druid Hill, that gives you a kind of a good overview of what's going on here now. It it serves its original intent. It's a place to come where it's softer to get out of the city. You see trees, so your eyes kind of relax. And you tend to breathe a little more deeply here. Uh, You can also recreate because we have all kinds of sports going on. And there's a whole bunch of cycling, joggers. There's programs for all of that. So I think it's a place, it still is a place to get out of the city, feel like you're not in the city, but still be close enough that it's easy access to get here.
0: There's also a long-storied, well-known social tradition at the park.
1: Yeah, on Sunday afternoons, the tradition in Druid Hill is that young African Americans come here and they line their cars on both sides of the road along the reservoir, and then people drive slowly through. And for me, I call it preening, that people look at, they're looking, checking each other out, everybody's kind of dressed up and i've read when i researched the book that i wrote was that when the when the there were carriages in the park the same exact thing happened on sunday afternoons they were they would drive very slowly around the carriage roads and check each other out so i just i love that analogy that it's happened happened then it's happening still
0: <laughs> sitting here on the bench with my back against the fence
2: there's
1: a lot of neighborhoods that surround the park. And on the west and south side, uh, the park used to go right up to the row homes. So those people, you know, the neighborhoods just could pour in here. And in 1947, the city wanted to make it easier for the people who lived on the west side to get downtown. So they built this road, Druid Park Lake Drive, which turns into Alcontraley Terrace and Reisterstown Road. And it's a, pretty much a four-lane highway. So it's very hard for the neighbors from Reservoir Hill and Mondaman to get just walk across the street to the park. As a kid, you just can't do that. So you have to go to the crossing and still it's not a great crossing. So in 47, the neighborhoods were really cut off from the park and I would say that a lot of people from those neighborhoods don't walk into the park right now. Now the city has a contract that's being done right now at strategic locations to make the crossing safer. So that will really, I hope that will bring more walkers from the local neighborhoods into the park.
0: There's another project Anne was instrumental in orchestrating, a 2008 reenactment of the Druid Hill Park Tennis Court desegregation protest of 1948.
1: I read a newspaper article in 2007 about this event that had happened here in 1948. And um, I just got very interested in it. And I saw an article that this woman was around, this white woman who had gotten the permit that morning. So I got in touch with her. And we started this whole process of the end product is recreating the the tennis event, what happened here. There was a a presidential election that year. This guy, Henry Wallace, was running. He was really pro-civil rights. And he was encouraging people who were following him to do some action. So these folks wanted to do an action. And they said, well, this is the perfect thing because the colored courts are so bad we can we can work together so they got the baltimore tennis club which were the blacks and they're the progressives and they staged this event on july 11th 1948 is today july 11th (laughs) 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 well we did it in 08 it was 60 years so it's 68 years today This keeps coming up, and it should be. It should, because this is one of the first civil rights demonstrations that happened in the country, in 1948. So now we're talking, you know, 15 years before the 60s happened, six years before Brown versus the Board of Education.
0: Up next, we'll hear about separate and unequal tennis, including the story of one of the 1948 protests' youngest participants. You're listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community.
3: Calman Heddleman, people call me Buzzy. I've been called worse.
0: In the 1950s, Calman Buzzy Heddleman ranked among the top 50 tennis players in the country. As a child, he played and trained at Druid Hill Park.
3: First of all, you mispronounced it, it's Druid Park. You, you've heard that? That's the way Baltimoreans say, they say Druidle, not Druid Hill, you're showing yourself to be a foreigner.
0: Whoops, he's right. Fun fact, the reason Drew Hill, the popular 1990s R&B group named after the Druid Hill community, pronounces its name that way, is because that is, in fact, the correct way for locals. Locals are also familiar with the community surrounding the park as a racially stratified space, where Jewish, black, and white residents populated very segregated communities, the park was the only space that brought them together, willingly or grudgingly. We met with Buzzy at his home to discuss just that and to talk about something pretty big he did at the height of his athletic career, something he downplays a bit.
3: There were the hard courts, which are there now where the reservoir is, and then, and they, they were the white courts. Then if you went up the hill, there were the, quote, black courts, and then there were, at this time, the clay courts out where the conservatory is now. And those were tennis courts, the grass, to the, to the north. And so we played out there in the, in the summer season. And at that time, only whites played at the, uh, on the uh, clay courts by the conservatory. In
0: 1955, Buzzy became one of the first local tennis champions to play on the colored courts. He won the men's singles trophy in an interracial match that was covered in the Afro-American newspaper. What made him participate when the park was still so racially stratified?
3: Don't remember the origin. It's just that, you know, to me, a tournament was a tournament and a trophy was a trophy. And so I, and I think I was conscious that I was making a statement too. At the time, I was the city champion, so... In a small way, it meant something that I did it. So I I just did it.
0: Around the same time, Mr. Hedelman had another formative interracial competition experience.
3: Well, you know, my claim to fame is that I beat Arthur Ashe. And for anybody who knows tennis, they know that Arthur Ashe, in in addition, mainly he was a magnificent human being, but he was also, you know, a world famous tennis champion. And when I say I beat Arthur Ashe, uh, he was African American. When I say I beat Arthur Ashe, you beat Arthur Ashe. Well, then, I, you know, candor requires me to say that I was probably 20 or 21, and he was probably 12 or 13. So that that explains
0: it. Mr. Hedelman was interested in competition, no matter the race of his opponents. But a few years before he won the 1955 match, a group of local tennis athletes played a different kind of interracial match, one during which they were certain no trophies would be awarded.
2: This is the four of the women that played tennis that day. That's me.
0: (laughs) We visited Mitzi Swan in her retirement home in Towson. Miss Swan, then known by her maiden name Freistadt, played tennis at Western High School and during college at University of Maryland. But in 1948, at the age of 18, she wasn't as interested in competitive play as fair play.
2: We had a couple, an interracial couple, that used to play tennis on the tennis courts. And I was a tennis player. I went to Western High School, and I was on the tennis team. So anyway, they used to play tennis all the time. And sometimes they would go on the black courts, and they said that it was in terrible condition. There were roots and everything. It was just horrible to play. And then when they would come to the white courts, they were kicked out. The uh, park police were called, and they were kicked out. So a lot of us played tennis. I lived right across the street from Jude Hill Park at the time. So we decided that this would make a, a statement, you know, to open up the courts. Why should it have discrimination
0: The young progressives partnered with the city's black tennis club, the Baltimore Tennis Club, to organize their symbolic action. And they wanted an audience.
2: We publicized it every place. The Sun Papers and the other newspaper at the time. And we sent it to the government and the state, the uh, city officials and everybody. And it was well known. And there was leaflets distributed and things like that, notifying people of what was taking place. When we started, the, the four women, we were two white and two black, and same thing on the male. We had two different courts. As soon as they got on the court, the police came. And let me preface all this. Because everybody knew about what was going to happen, we had, I don't know how many policemen standing around, the, the handy billy, billy in one hand and a baton in the other. And... They were all over the place. They already had what we used to call the Black Mariah, but it was the black wagon that used caught you off. All there, ahead of time. So as soon as the poor men went on the courts and picked up a racket and played, they were told, you cannot play, you have to leave the courts. And they refused. And they were dragged off the courts. And then... When the four of us, four women, picked up our rackets to play. Same thing happened. Except we didn't get, you know, carried off the courts. We walked. Well, anyway, as soon as we were erupted, the crowd roared. There were over 500 people there. And the crowd just roared, you know, in protest. And then it was just instantaneous, and I don't I have no idea how it happened. But one person starts singing, "'America.'" And the whole group were singing My Country Tis of the Sweet Land of Liberty. And then did anybody who was really protesting this were also arrested. The park police were so dumb, they had no idea what we were singing. It was, they just said, well, some kind of hymn or something. Had no idea. So anyway, we had to go to court. And in the course of that, the judge dismissed the case except for the protesters, and they were held in contempt. Really, the newspapers were terrible. But the only one redeeming feature was, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but H.L. Mencken, who was a very famous writer, wrote editorials for some papers for years. He was a very sarcastic man, and sometimes I really did not like what he had to say, but he wrote a fantastic article. I have it here. Quote, Certainly, it is astounding to find so much of the spirit of the Georgia cracker surviving in Maryland free state. Under official auspices, the public parks are supported by taxpayers, including colored taxpayers, for the health and pleasure of whole people. Why should cops be sent into them to separate these people against their will into separate herds? Why should the law set up distinctions and discriminations? which the persons directly affected themselves reject. It is high time that all such relics of coup luxury be wiped out in Maryland. The position of the colored people since the political revolution of 1895 has been gradually improving in the state and it has already reached a point surpassed by a few other states. But there still is plenty of room for further advances. And it is irritating, indeed, to see one of them blocked by silly dogberries. The park board rule is irrational and nefarious, and it should be got rid of forthwith.
0: The column would be Mencken's last. He had a stroke just days after writing about the tennis protest and never wrote again. As compelling and historic as it was, Druid Hill Park's 1948 tennis court protest is actually the less-known park desegregation story. The one that springs more immediately to mind is about Pool number 2. Perhaps because it was used by more residents, a greater number of families swim in summer than play tennis after all. More people remember when Druid Hill Park had segregated pools. The pool for black Baltimoreans was built in 1921. At 100 feet by 105 feet, it was half the size of the whites-only Pool number 1, and it was meant to serve about 100,000 black residents.
4: You know, that pool... Uh, that area with the tennis courts and the pool that was separate, but was just as beautiful as the rest of the park. And the pool had a filter on it, which the other pools didn't have because the idea was, and this is what was explained to me, the idea was that we would mess the water up so we actually had a better pool filtration system than others. From all the stories that I heard by interviewing people, it was the place to be not only because it was so hot in the summer, but it was the place where people could safely just have fun together.
0: This is the amazing Joy Scott, renowned artist, sculptor, quilter, installation artist, and educator. In 1995, the city commissioned Miss Scott to design a commemorative space at the site of pool number two.
4: Firstly, we wanted to fill in the pool, because you're not gonna swim there anymore. And the idea was to maybe in that area to make it a cool place for people to come and maybe drum or do poetry or just hang out.
0: The plans to make the commemorative redesign a communal gathering space were unrealized. The day we visited, two young men walked a dog along the rectangle of grass where the pool used to be. It was otherwise unpopulated. But a few hundred feet outside the pool space, in a nearby pavilion, a vibraphonist was prepping for a concert. Perhaps he and a small audience were drawn to this part of the park by Miss Scott's thoughtful artistic design.
4: My, my idea was not to leave a ghost of the park, but like a, like a memory in a scrapbook. This area was specifically for African Americans. And, you know, to get to it blacks had to walk through the rest of the park. So you might have an easy time, but you might get the old stink eye or even get yelled at on your way to the area that that was safe to you. We did the perimeter in a blue tile to allude to the water that used to exist, but, you know, we left the the lifeguard benches up and painted them so it would talk about the pool. Now, originally, there was a lot of painting on the walkway around the pool. I don't know if it still exists because the weather really attacked. It was like a brighter color, like swirls and uh, blues, maybe some oranges, I think. And because it directly related to what's happening on the top of the the roof of the changing house. And that's one of the things that I really liked. A lot. If you look at the roof, that we did the tiles so that there's a wave and a swervy design that not only talked about water but about the shape of clouds.
0: Miss Scott, a lifelong Baltimorean, shared some of her other memories of the park over the years, both good and not so good.
4: Unfortunately, a few people were killed in the park, and um, it it used to be a dating haunt. You know, people would get together late at night and terrible things would pop off because of that. You could be robbed. I mean, I think if it were like a lover's lane situation, there was problems with that as well. And then just think about it. <laughs> if it I mean, you can still drive through the park now and I'm really pissed about this. You can drive through actually neighborhoods in Baltimore now at night and they're not lit. The street lights aren't on. So if you enter the park coming from Hamden, you can drive for a while, No, they're, they're not. They're just like, you're in the dark. That's not safe. There's also a thing about homeless people living in nukes down there, and that that's the truth. And people were frightened because of that, too.
0: Up next, we'll visit the Druid Hill Farmers Market, which has helped breathe new life into the park for the past six years. You've been listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on WEAA 88.9 FM. Last Wednesday, we took a trip to the Druid Hill Farmers Market, hosted by a community organization called the Friends of Druid Hill Park. It's a peaceful gathering of vendors, community members, and people who drive in from other neighborhoods just to hang out. A jazz band plays, and before they start, they spin popular music, some of which you'll hear in the background of our interviews. Here are some of the people we met.
5: But it's a good it's a good park, everybody, you know, walking, having fun, enjoying the and all that stuff. And um, I'm doing myself, you know that, and start, you know, stay of trouble and all that kind of stuff. So and you know all that. So I come here to walk and just people, water bikes, swim, listen to music, you know that kind of stuff. My
0: earliest memory of coming to the park was with my mom when I was a kid. I wasn't even a teenager. And I remember up by the conservatory, they had these um, podiums that had these books in it that told you, they had pictures of, back in the day, old school, when they had horses, when they had sheep out here, when they heard sheep, they had um, pictures of the old vehicles, like the old Fords and Chevrolets and things of that nature that are historic cars today. Uh, That's the first thing I remember as a child.
5: They're using the same facilities, but they didn't, like, upgrade it around. Because you can see all the old stuff in there, like them ponds, and they got a, a gazebo in the pond. That's where the swans was. You could ride the boats in and all that. But it's a lot they didn't cut off. A whole lot they didn't cut off. The biggest changes that we have in this community is the older people the older people die off, and the younger people don't pick up their houses. They don't pick up their properties. They, it's just vacant, you know. So, like, in my neighborhood, we got, like, 30 houses. And in them 30 houses, the ones that's, well, two that's there ever since we was little kids. Well, you know, the park is a valuable thing because now we got the farmer's market. I came when they first started. We had a little bit of people. But it seems like it's getting bigger and it's growing. Then you have the band, then you have different things to draw people into the park. So even if that means that on a Wednesday, you just come to the park, sit and eat some dinner or whatever, sandwich, and, and feel comfortable. Because you got to feel safe because, the, you know, things go on. And it's a good it's a good thing because it makes the children run into the water and all that kind of stuff like we, You know, it's good and more people needs to be involved. And I I think if people really knew how it was to be really involved, to just get on up your feet and come out here and sit down and look and see what's going on. You ain't gotta buy nothing, just have peace of mind. You know, this is like, I got off of work and I came here, so I got peace of mind. You know, and and I like this, we ain't doing nothing, but we're here, you know, so it's a good thing. And I think that people need to start getting involved. And see, Parks and People, that's who got me really into this. Because I used to say, I'm not coming over here. But I came over here, and I like it. You know, I like it. I stopped coming because you get fear. You know, you get fear when things happen. And things happen, and you don't want to be really involved but here is a safe haven to me.
3: When I was growing up, coming to the park, everything was free. Only thing you paid for was to go in the pool. We had tennis courts in South Baltimore. We didn't have a pool, so we all traveled here or went to Cherry Hill. I work for my son, that's why I'm here, but I come here because I like the park. I ride my bike around the reservoir, and you could see the diversity. When I first came back, because I was riding in Colombia and something I said, you need to go back to the park. And I went, and I was totally shocked. But it's, it's like the United Nations, that's what I call it. It's really nice. I come to the concerts. They have the jazz in the garden and different concerts behind the tennis courts. It's a big change. It's a welcome change.
5: It wasn't kept up it was just here. You know, the grass was long. Uh, around the reservoir, uh, there was nothing. Now they have the exercise equipment around the reservoir. The conservatory, uh, mm, it had plants, but it doesn't have the full you know, array of plants that they have now. Well, I think that this park is important to the neighborhood because this is where everyone meets. This is where you can come when you have no place else to go. This is, uh, it's just so beautiful.
0: For generations, Druid Hill Park has been a giant oasis for hundreds of thousands of city residents, and many of those residents are already aware of its wonder and the many beautiful programs and sites it has to offer. With the vestiges of its segregated past behind it, and a sunny future of vibrant summers on the horizon, we hope it continues to draw people back in for generations to come. This program was produced by Stacia Brown and Allie Post, brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR, with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore The Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from Druid Hill Park and the people you just heard talking about it, visit RiseOfCharmCity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at RiseOfCharmCity. This has been the final episode of our show's first season. Be sure to follow us online for updates about our next season's progress.